Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm here as always with co-host John Micton, live from Switzerland. How are you doing, John? Good, good, Dan. And you're live from Prague. And uh, yeah. one thing that we've always, you know, I think one thing that you have always been interested in, and I am too, is kind of the trends of international schools and how they have, you know, changed over time. We've had guests talk about nonprofit profit, and the, we just had somebody on admissions. We talk with a lot of different people that kind of talk about the lifespan or the, the narrative of international schools. And one organization that Dan and I, uh, have always, you know, respected and always been keen to connect with is ICSC Research, sorry. And uh, they do some phenomenal work and they've been doing work for over 25 years on data analysis of international schools. So it's a real privilege to have uh, Nalini Cook with us today uh, to talk a bit about this. And Nalini, a warm welcome to the International School Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, Dan, I know this is a burning topic for you. Go for it. What do you want to know about international schools and trends? <laughs> well, you know, uh, John, I think you've got also a lot of questions. I mean, from my point of view, I guess, uh, Naomi, it's interesting. What um, could you give us like, like, a, like, you know, what's kind of the big picture? I know, obviously, you know, there's a general trend of international schools were originally for the for the children of expatriates, NGOs, company, you know, and it's obviously grown to be much more local and much bigger. Is it possible for you just to give us a kind of a, a, an overall summary of of, um, of of what kind of a, the evolution of international schools are over, over time? That, that for me would be a super interesting place to start. Absolutely. Um, it's a really interesting one. There are arguments about who was the very first international school. The general consensus seems to be... Um, the International School of Geneva, yep. founded in the uh, 1920s, although there is evidence of internationally inclined schools in, existing in places like London before that. But really, until about ooh, 20 to 30 years ago, um, they were few and far between, and they catered very much to an expatriate market, a Western expatriate market, of people who went to different countries for uh, employment purposes, and essentially taking their families there, those their children couldn't access um, the local education because they didn't have the language skills or because it was going to be a, a two-year or a three-year stint or contract, yeah. and then they would have to re-enter their home uh, country's education system, so there needed to be some continuity. And so lots of international schools were, were founded upon that basis. A lot of them, especially if you go back 30 or 40 years ago, were created by parents themselves, specifically yeah. to answer this need. They were created by companies, particularly companies like oil and gas, um, defence companies, really to answer a very specific need. And what we've seen emerge over the last 30 years or so is a recognition of international education for its own sake, rather than through necessity. And so increasingly, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, we're seeing um, local nationals wanting to attend international schools, not because they're cut out of the local curriculum, not because um, you know, an employer is paying for this type of education, but simply because they recognise a value in international education and what that might give their children. And that's where it's exploded, really, in the last few years. 
What Nalini on that explosion? So there have been a lot of there are nonprofit schools, so the kind of the original schools that opened up for expats and companies, and now they're very for profit. And it seems that the for profit is where the growth is. Uh, do you have any data or explanation why that is, and why are nonprofits? Is it just the fact that it's nonprofit? It's more difficult to expand. Um. You're absolutely right in terms of how that's developed. Most of the original schools were not-for-profit. Um, there are still not-profit, non-profit schools uh, being founded, but they are few and far between. Um, and a lot of the time that is down to simply the fact that it can be harder to get licenses for non-profit schools. Um, we're seeing an explosion of uh, school groups and independent school brands, um, certainly over the last five to ten years, um, they are for profit um, for a reason. And certainly, in the case of some groups, they have shareholders that you know publicly uh, uh, on the market as such. Uh, they're publicly listed. Um, but there's also, I think it's important to note that it isn't quite as binary as it sometimes seems. There are a lot of for-profit schools, or certainly schools that we at IEC Research would term for profit, and I think most people would, who, whilst on paper they're for profit, and that's the license they have, do fundamentally operate in the same way as a not-for-profit, whereby all profits generated are put back into the school and don't necessarily go to an owner's pocket or shareholders. They are used to improve the quality of education that's uh, provided. Interesting. That's interesting. I've heard the same thing. And, and also, there's definitely a case of a lot of not-for-profit. I'm not talking about any schools here, but just if you take the not-for-profit sector in general across the world, there's a lot of not-for-profits that are not-for-profit, but they have huge consultancy fees paid out. So they are actually effectively a, a for-profit for somebody. And I've, I've heard even of a couple of schools that have been described like that. So I, I think it's, yeah, it's interesting what you say, but it's not always like the, the, the clear-cut distinction, especially with the for-profit schools. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that. So, Nalini, maybe you can talk a bit about the history of your organization, because 25 years is a long time. I have, you know, as a school leader, I've gone to many leadership conferences, and I know your organization always does kind of a, as we say in French, an état des lieux, kind of the state of play, and you get the statistics and the patterns of how many teachers you might be anticipating the growth. And so tell us a bit about how did this come about? And I think you might be one of one of the more unique organizations in this field specific to international schools. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We are the only organization who uh, researches the international schools English medium market solely doing that. Um, there are, of course, some huge consultancies who have that um, in their portfolio, but we focus solely on the English medium international schools market. We're very specific. We've been doing it for almost 30 years now. Uh, next year, 2024, will be our 30-year anniversary. And it it came about um, through chance, really. Our chairman, uh, Nick Brummett, who um, I think a lot of people will still know in the international school circuit, um, was at the time working as a, a salesman for a, a publisher and going round to international schools. And while he was doing that and visiting these schools 29 years ago, um, and as he became more friendly with, uh, with the schools themselves, they were asking him, well, I want, you know, you've been to this, another 10 schools in this city, or you've been to this 
particular country? What's, what's going on there? You know, how are they doing compared to us? And as a result, he started collecting um, data and information on the market. And that's how it began. Um, our head office is, is based in Farringdon in Oxfordshire in the UK, um, simply because the company was actually started in a shed at the bottom of Mick Bromwich's garden um, almost 30 years ago. Um, we've now expanded. Um, when I joined um, nine years ago, I joined the organisation, we were about 15 people. Um, we're now almost 60 people around wow. the world. We have uh, a hub still in, in Farringdon, no longer in the shed, now in the proper premises. Um, <clears throat> we have a hub in the Philippines, and then we have people based around the world in places like uh, Hungary, Spain, the US, China, uh, India. I'm speaking to you from Dubai in the UAE today. So we've, we've grown exponentially um, as the school market has grown, really. And it started with a desire to find out information about what was going on in, in the international schools market. And that's still very much our, our, our mission, which is to provide accurate, reliable, data and intelligence on the international schools market to benefit the schools themselves, to benefit anybody who is working with or supplying into that market so that they can make um, informed strategic decisions. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think nowadays many schools understand the power of data and that can really help as they kind of, you know, align themselves for strategic planning, having that data, especially if they look at competition or maybe uh, salary scales or even it might be availability of teachers for recruitment and those kind of things. What what metrics are you using? Are you doing this kind of uh through any softwares or surveys, or are you now introducing some artificial intelligence? Just kind of, you know, how is this data collected? What are, and you don't have to give away the state secrets, but kind of on a surface level, kind of some ideas, how you're collating this and what technologies you might be using. Well, again, we've definitely progressed, certainly in the, in the last decade. Like when I joined, uh, we were very much still using Excel spreadsheets and we still do to a certain extent, of course, they're always useful, but we now have um, a whole development team who, who are uh, currently actually redesigning our systems for us and we'll have new systems online. So anybody who's already using our platforms will, uh, will see new front ends to those systems in the next couple of months. Um, but we are definitely using uh, tools like Power BI, um, uh, trying to think this is not my area of expertise. Uh, but we're definitely starting to harness AI. What I would say, and I think what makes us different is whilst we're using those types of tools to save time, um, and we use things like SurveyMonkey sometimes to, for specific surveys, the core part of our research, and still the main part, easily 80 to 90% is undertaken by real life human beings and individuals, whether it is uh, sitting at a screen and looking at school websites, whether it's calling up schools um, to find out what's going on, or in the case of my team, um, I head up the field research team, it's actually physically going into the schools and taking a school tour and talking to various international school leaders to find out what it is that's important to them at the moment, what patterns, trends are changing, 
um, what are their current challenges, those types of things. And ultimately, that just really can't be gathered by AI. It's, uh, you know, it's a super useful tool and certainly something that we can then organize some of this data with. But actually, gathering the data is still very much a human endeavor at the moment. Um, I think yes. there will be perhaps not for eternity, but certainly I, I think over the next few decades, I don't think that can be replaced by AI. Interesting. I've, um, I'm curious, um, Nalini, obviously you're in Dubai. I'm, I'm actually going to Dubai on Sunday. I'm going to be there for a few days and also Saudi Arabia and uh, Bahrain. Um, what, what are the, um, I'm keen to a bit more about the trends you, you mentioned before. Like, could you say a bit more like where, where, what kind of regions are having the growth in international schools and what's driving and also like what country specifically? Because I know it's kind of, you might say one region, but within that, you know, for example, I mean, Saudi Arabia, it seems to me, has got tons of new skills opening. So, like, what, 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 are, what are the trends you're seeing and how, and how has that sort of evolved since you've been involved in for the, for the last nine years or ten years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly going back a few years, almost everything was focused on China. Yeah. China was the uh, sort of the big ticket that everybody was looking at for opening schools if you were a teacher looking to go overseas you were looking at china and that's completely flipped um in the last few years firstly thanks to covid i don't think that will be a surprise to anybody um yeah. but the increasing regulation that we're finding there that's what i've heard yeah yeah making it harder to open a school certainly if you are a, a chinese national um you can't attend an international curriculum school without certain exceptions and it, it, it's quite complicated now not only to open and run a school there but uh, increasingly to recruit teachers um, there we've seen a mass exodus of, of teachers from that region yeah. interestingly there are still i think off the top of my head um i think we've still got 28 future schools um on our radar uh, due to open in the next uh, two years Wow. So it's it's certainly not come to a grinding halt. It's just a lot more challenging um, in China, and people are having to find uh, innovative ways to uh, cope with the regulation and uh, the challenges of a recruitment. Sure. Um, but in terms of where else we're seeing the growth, I would say at the moment the most extreme growth is most definitely in Asia as a whole. And if we broke that down, it would be Southeast Asia and what we would term Western Asia, which is the Middle East, um, excluding Egypt. Um, and within, again, those sub-regions, um, Vietnam is a, a big one. They had a legislation change a few years ago, um, enabling uh, Vietnamese children to attend international schooling. Um, yeah. Certainly up to 50% uh, of your uh, enrollment can now be Vietnamese children. So that's booming. Um, Japan looks to be growing. Um, interestingly, that was quite closed off for uh, quite a long time. Last academic year, we had the first UK brand school open there. There are another two UK brand schools that have opened this academic year. Interesting. Um, so that's starting to uh, to get going. And interestingly there, the demand isn't necessarily coming from... Um, Japanese nationals or indeed typical expats who are there on a work contract what we're seeing is an increasing number of people um, exiting China 
because they can't access international education and moving temporarily or boarding um, and looking to go to international schools within Japan, South Korea, uh, Thailand and Vietnam seem to be the big ones. Interesting. I was just in uh, last year in Cambodia and I was at an education event. It was actually the, the British um, ambassador's residence and there was um, an, a British school. I think it was Shrewsbury. I can't remember. Shrewsbury. And they, they were set, setting up a boarding school in Cambodia. And just what you said, their target market was Chinese people sending their children um, overseas to the boarding school. It, so it's, it's interesting. There's such a demand for, for Chinese families to get the international education and They'll, you know, they, they'll, and it's obviously a long way to send them to Europe or US. So if it's something in the region where they can get back easier and it's probably cheaper as well, it, I'm sure it's a huge market now. Absolutely. It's a really interesting phenomenon. There's a whole whole industry growing up around it. I mean, if you look at Jeju in South Korea, um, yeah. we're seeing housing developments come up, uh, particularly um, populated by things like golf courses in and. and they're particularly aimed at these Chinese expatriate families where um, it might be the grandparents or it might be mum who comes there during term time, they buy a condo or an apartment, um, child goes to school or children go to school there, and then uh, in holidays they're not too far, they fly home. Um, And yeah, best of of both worlds. It's a really interesting development. Yeah, I'd never connected with dots because we work a lot in Korea. And uh, John, I know you've been and we, uh, you know, we run a, we run a Google Summit in Korea almost every year. And I was always wondering why Jeju, you know, obviously it's a tourist destination, but why are there so many international schools? And I was kind of thinking, does the tourist industry support this many people? And I wasn't actually thinking that a lot of Chinese people were sending their, you know. Yeah, that's uh, right. It's a free zone. It's a free zone. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how this is developing and we're starting to uh, get inquiries from people who are looking at opening schools um, particularly targeted at these students so there will be elements of the Chinese curriculum and language provision alongside the international curriculum. Fascinating. One thing you talked about is the UK branded schools. And I know that, you know, a lot of uh, public schools and for our audience, a public school in England is actually a private school. Uh, That's always (laughs) uh, uh, the private English schools, the Harrows, the Haleberries, the Eatons and the Dulwiches. You now are seeing them going out and kind of franchising themselves. Can you talk about what was kind of the strategic idea? Is it generally income generation or is it also because that curriculum is is so well appreciated that they see that brand of curriculum also a value added proposition in the markets that they're going? Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a combination of all of the above and, and a few additional factors. I think it's worth knowing that in the UK, um, those public schools, which are private schools, we like to make it as tricky as possible in the UK, mm. <laughs> are, um, are generally charities. Um, so the way that they're run is, is, is quite particular. Um, they can't make profit. And certainly, again, a trend there over the last couple of decades is that proportionate to income, uh, the tuition fees for those schools has become much higher meaning that the market is shrinking in the UK. It's hard for them uh, financially. So initially, I think for the majority of schools, there's certainly a financial element to that decision to go overseas, a desire to create an additional revenue stream, basically. 
in addition to tuition fee income. Um, we do also deal with a lot of US independent schools and Australian independent schools, slightly different motivations there, but they all do have in common um, the desire to increase that brand awareness. So firstly, there's a desire to improve brand awareness overseas so that there will be some students who might then look at the home school in the home country. So it's just a, a marketing strategy to a certain degree. There's also, um, you know, the charter for a lot of these schools, their mission, their, um, their purpose of being is um, specifically to educate uh, people without profit. Um, and so even when you find those schools opening schools overseas, that is still their main motivation. It is to, to share quality education. Any profits that are made, I think it's, you know, because they're in the UK, certainly their charities, it's worth knowing that whilst they might be profit making overseas, those profits are going back into the schools as a whole. They are used to, uh, you know, support teacher recruitment, development of facilities, um, fund resources, etc. Um, so there's some very, very different motivations out there. But Certainly, it helps in terms of bringing students to the home schools. There's also been a little bit of a trend, um, and COVID exacerbated this significantly, which is that families are less keen to send their children to board in the UK or in the US, Canada, Australia. They want that same quality and standard of education. They want it a little bit closer to home, so that if something like a pandemic happens, children are a little bit more accessible. So we've seen a, a significant shift of people who perhaps historically would have sent their children to board overseas now looking for that same kind of product um, in their local markets. Um, so I think interesting, that, that's yeah, we had main motivations. That's interesting, yeah, John. We had obviously Denry Machin uh, on the on the podcast, who's written uh, written a few academic papers on this topic of the for profit <laughs> schools. Really interesting guy, and. Um, you know, he was, it's just interesting because he was, I think, believe he was saying, or someone was saying that um, there was only a very few schools at, at British or whatever private schools who managed them directly. I think the only real one was Marlborough College in Malaysia. And almost all the other ones were partnering with a local mm-hmm. entity, which was everything from private equity to real estate developers to all kinds of things who were there with the local people. And it was their business, basically. They were paying a franchise fee to the school, and, a, and a, the school was providing quality control. They were sending a share of the profits. Is, is that is that still the model? Is that still what, how, how it's kind of working for most schools? Very much so, because schools yeah. typically don't have the funds to to yeah. manage everything from land purchase to uh, the school build um, and management thereon. So they will um, typically offer their services as a joint venture with. Um, a developer, an investor, etc. But the services that they provide um, can be and usually are quite comprehensive in that they will, uh, you know, they would be a part of designing the school, the school building, making sure it, uh, you know, fits with uh, the style of education being offered. They would appoint the head. They'll often appoint senior leaders as well. There will be governors from the home school. Um, they'll be regular quality assurance visits out, yeah. curricula will be shared, um, things like university pathways, college counsellors, careers advisors, etc., might be shared or at least trained from the home school. So there's there's a real desire to put the, um, the home school's ethos and quality stamp 
in the uh, branch school, typically. Interesting. Interesting. Are there any non-Western franchises or companies there you know there are uh, gems is an example of these big corporations that tend to be more uh, gems is not a uh, i think it's owned by a uh indian, indian entity yeah. uh, i'm just wondering is any uh, like are the chinese franchising international schools are the indians is there you know because we are talking very much about a western kind of uh you know approach is there the opposite, maybe more of an Indian approach or more a Chinese approach in that international school market? Uh, yes, and an emerging um, yes, I think is the answer to that. Um, not in quite the same way we don't have those schools that have been around for hundreds of years who are uh, really taking that entire brand ethos uh, curriculum, etc., across. But we are starting to see, for example, there is a, a Chinese school that has opened in Dubai. Now, it's not really a brand in and of itself, but they are bringing that expertise over. Um, the Indian, and the name escapes me, but uh, Global... Might come to me during the, during the conversation. There's a Global School um, from India that is uh, uh, opening in uh, Singapore. So we are seeing that start to emerge. It's not as big a trend as the uh, the Western brands yet, um, but it is starting to emerge. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that whilst they get a lot of airtime, the uh, the Western branded schools that are expanding, there are still only, it's under 150 around the world. They're not a huge percentage of the market. It's something like 1.3, 1.4% of the total market. They're just very visible. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Interesting, John. I've um, I've noticed a lot in the Middle East recently when I've been uh, the number of a, a lot of schools focused on Indian expatriates families. I was in in Bahrain. Bahrain has like several schools. They're not sometimes they are called an Indian school, sometimes not. But their their target, you know, you know, their target student or the target parents are are Indians, kind of working in the country, and it's and they follow the Indian national curriculum, which you really need to do if you want to get into an Indian university and stuff. So, it seems like it's really a growing growing thing. Um, is that just in the Middle East, Nalini, or is that, is that in other places as well? Um, I'd say it's very prevalent in the Middle East, certainly yeah. in the Gulf states. Um, the, the people who originate from the Indian subcontinent tend to make up around 60 to 70% of the populations here, yeah. uh, bearing in mind that the populations are largely 80% plus expatriates, yeah. with the exception of Saudi. Um, it's... Uh, it's a little bit of a funny uh, market, but we see similar, um, maybe not to quite such a, a large extent in, in places like Singapore, Malaysia, um, increasingly Thailand as well. Interesting. Is Saudi, is, is it less, a, a lower percentage of expats in Saudi? I presume that's what you mean. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yes. yeah there's, a, there's a much larger percentage of uh, Saudis themselves. Can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but I would say in around the region of 60% are Saudis versus 40% expats. Um, and of course, a huge youth population of Saudis themselves there, which is what's driving the huge growth in Saudi. Yeah, Canada. yeah. Um, it's it's going to be, you know, just I can see myself. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be there next week actually in Jeddah and Riyadh. And, um, you know, up until last year, you, you couldn't even get a tourist visa for Saudi. Now, if you want to visit, you apply online, you get it instantly multi entry visa, multiple entries. Um, and it's so, you know, the growth that it seems everyone's talking about it. They're building a whole new city there, you know, um, 
I've heard people say they're even going to be sell, selling alcohol there soon, whether or not that's going to happen. But I've heard several people say it's going to happen this year. Like, and so it's there's it's a lot of rumors to that effect. The country is most certainly opening up. Um, yeah. As you say, it used to be incredibly challenging to get a visa. It used to be a difficult place. I think if you were a Westerner, certainly sure. to to live and work, it was seen as a hardship posting. Um, I was there just a few months back, and certainly these days. You know, as a woman, not only can you drive, I could walk around, um, you know, without being, uh, without having my head covered. Um, I was wearing trousers and a blouse. Um, it's, uh, it's it's really opening up, and, and the 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 PIF there, which is the Public Investment Fund, is literally pumping money into so many developments there. They really do want to uh, want to develop the country and, and become more more welcoming to the outside world. So definitely want to watch interesting one thing uh you know we're hearing about all this expansion of schools and growth mm -hmm. and you know uh franchising etc you need teachers right for these schools talk to us a bit about the teacher market because you know in many countries you have a lot of teacher shortages often not because there's not teachers available it's the challenges of working in the uk i've been following a lot uh about some of the issues of the the with the government organization that kind of accredits schools and there are issues of social economic challenges within the classroom so there is this kind of talk of teacher shortage is that the case in international schools but for a different reason or is it still a tight market for teachers um, I think the, the overarching thing to remember here is that there is a shortage of teachers, whether it's a domestic market or an international market. Um, there is no question about that. Um, and that's only going to get tougher in the coming years as schools are opening at a rate of knots. And we just don't have the teachers uh, trained and qualified, nor are enough coming through um, the training system. Um, as that goes. So without a doubt, um, there is a teacher recruitment crisis, um, quite an alarming word, but um, certainly a, a shortage. Um, there are nuances to that in the international schools market. Um, in China at the moment, it's incredibly difficult to find quality teachers. Um, salaries have always been the highest um, in the world. And of course, when you're recruiting for international schools, you're, in, you're recruiting on a global stage. You're not recruiting solely from your, uh, your own country or your own region. Um, and I think certainly recent conversations have indicated uh, from school leaders that there is a limit. There's a point at which you top out and you cannot pay teachers anymore, no matter how willing um, uh, the school owners are, no matter how deep their pockets are, um, there does come a point where no matter how much you're paying, you're still not getting the, the quality and the standard of teachers that you want. Um, in the Middle East, we're currently enjoying a little bit of uh, a halcyon uh, time, I think, right now. Um, as you alluded to, there's lots of cost of living crises, there's conflict in Europe, um, lots of things going on that make the Middle East seem um, very attractive to people at the moment. Um, so 
less of a challenge here, although I would still say uh, places like Kuwait and uh, Saudi are challenging to get the right people in. Um, a question about Dubai, because I mean, what really interests me, I was, I was in Dubai, might be getting the dates wrong, but I think about two years ago, just post-COVID, and a lot of the schools were having real crisis. They were reducing their fees. They were under, they were under-enrolled. And then I went back a year later, and the picture had changed completely, where everyone's schools were full. There were waiting lists. New schools were opening. And people were attributing to it, to, to the Ukraine war, Ukrainian and Russian families both, both leaving. Is, is, is that, is that, is, am I kind of painting the right picture, or was there, was there other factors in there? Absolutely. Dubai, as you know, is an incredibly new city, um, certainly as, as far as development goes. And uh, I've been here 20 years and we have these real extreme peaks and troughs. And yeah. it's no different at the moment. We're currently in a real peak. It's boom, there's buoyancy everywhere. It's a real um, uh, bullish market. But um, yeah, post-COVID, we had um, a lot of internal churn with people who wanted to leave not necessarily leaving the country, it was all a little bit too uncertain, but we're currently experiencing um, huge amounts of people uh, turning up without jobs, um, turning up without really a great big plan. They're, they're, they're literally just turning up and trying their luck. That's how much people want to be here. So it's like San Francisco. It, Absolutely, absolutely. It was was definitely driven 18 months ago by the Ukraine and uh, Russia, certainly by, again, a number of Chinese nationals coming here wanting to uh, perhaps escape some of the border restrictions, uh, controls on wealth, etc. But increasingly now that uh, boom is ongoing, there are still people from those places uh, arriving, but we're also seeing a lot more people arriving from Western Europe. Um, and various other parts of the globe. So a real, yeah, a real boom here. We'll see how it goes. So Dan and I, Dan's in the Czech Republic, I'm in Switzerland, and uh, I I assume that Europe is not the big growth market anymore. (laughs) It is still growing, not to the same extent. Um, I think from memory, our figures were around 4% growth over the last five years for Europe. So there's definitely still growth. We're definitely still seeing um, an increasing number of local nationals looking at international schooling. Um, that is bringing um, the <laughs> average fees down, which makes things a little bit more challenging. Um, it's harder to recruit. Brexit's had an impact. Um, in the US, uh, we're seeing a lot of teachers in the uh, coming from the US being offered golden handshakes, bonuses and things to stay in the domestic market. So the recruitment crisis is still there. But interestingly, I do have conversations with school leaders sometimes who say, yeah, our problem isn't so much recruitment. It's actually getting people to turn over. (laughs) A typical attrition rate at a school uh, internationally would probably be around 10 to 12 percent, something in that region. Anything above 20, people start to get a little bit worried. Um, I have spoken to schools in uh, in Western Europe in particular who are saying we've got less than 1% of an attrition rate. And, and there are challenges with that as well. Um, yeah. yeah. We're almost at the end. And we, we did talk before we got on the air about the eduruptors. And, and I appreciate that you're not involved with the program. But uh, I know a lot of people, uh, it gets a lot of traffic. Uh, 
Dan and I feel privileged. We both were nominated. Uh, so maybe you can just tell us a bit about what that is and why. And I understand there is another group that really delves into it, but just kind of a, for people that might not be familiar with the term or the award. So Edruptors is something that ISC Research has been running for three years, I think now. Um, and we essentially look to identify um, key people in the international schools world who are disrupting uh, education and the way education is, is, is run. Um, we look in terms of metrics, we, we base it on social media, um, just as something that we can track so that it is um, objective rather than subjective. And we track uh, platforms like Twitter, LinkedIn, um, there's a number of them, I'm not a social media person, so I can't think of things off the top of my head, but I know that they, they track those, um, looking to see um, how many followers people have, how much engagement they get with their posts, how many posts are reposted, um, and the types of topics and trends that those people are investigating and sharing and exploring. What's underpinning this is we're, we're ideally looking to highlight people who are bringing something new and innovative to the market or sharing that so that it's accessible to more and more people. So the idea is that we produce this, uh, this list of, I think it's 100 people um, every year. Um, there is no um, judgment from our side as a company as to say, you know, this person is fantastic versus that person. It's simply that these people are sharing um, the most ideas that the most people find interesting, informative, and helpful. Um, and so in that way, we're tracking people who are um, key in school development, who are key in trends like uh, artificial intelligence, staff recruitment, uh, curriculum development, uh, assessments, could be anything, anything under the sun. Um, and we're just trying to get a handle on that. And so therefore we produce this paper, this white paper every year that shows those people and hopefully serves as something of a guide for those who may be new to the market or wanting to explore more and to explore the trends and what's happening currently to be able to identify trends and people to be able to follow. Um, and then of course we run the Adruptors Conference uh, virtually every summer in June, again highlighting some of the things that have emerged from that paper that's published in January. Fantastic. Great. Thank you. So I just want to remind our audience that uh, Nalini has been very generous. There are show notes with links. You can also uh, follow them at their website. And if you have not spent time on their website, I definitely encourage you. It's iscresearch.com. There's so much there that you can really learn about. And of course, you can reach out to them if you're interested in this fantastic uh, learning that we've just had about the metrics and kind of the patterns that are occurring in international schools. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you have any last questions before we wrap up. No, um, super. I could have talked for another, another hour. I've got loads of questions we didn't even get around to. I'm, I'm fascinated by the international school growth and everything. So uh, definitely hope to get you on again, Nalini, and we can ask you more questions. I'd love to. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and if anybody's listening in from an international school, I'd just like to highlight that 
all of these resources are avail available for you uh, completely freely. White papers, research papers, um, data on the school's market, there's a community platform, all kinds of things. Just uh, just head to the, uh, the website and please do make use of it. That's the reason that we produce this research. We hope you find it useful. Yeah, and that's extremely generous and definitely for school leaders, if you're looking at strategic development or you are maybe an investor or maybe an educator that wants to start your own school, you have to go to this website. I think you just learned so much. Nalini, thank you so much uh, for joining us and we look forward to more conversations. And again, to our audience, thank you for all the uh significant increase in LinkedIn subscription. So we really appreciate that people are excited about the guests that we bring to you and the conversations. And we so appreciate all the feedback and the reshares and the reposts. But uh, Nalini, have a wonderful rest of the week. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise and highlighting your organization. Thank you. Thank you.